Y'all turn with me to Romans 3, 23 through 26. And I, I just have to tell you from the outset, there's a lot of things in Scripture, a lot of things about our faith that are easy to understand, that even a, a small child can grasp. That's why I feel confident in baptizing kids who are uh, in elementary school and, and know that they understand what it means to follow Jesus. They're, they're not baffled by this stuff. And then there's things in the Bible that I don't think, as if I live to be 120, I won't completely understand them. And we're going to talk about some of those things today. And you might be saying, well, Jeff, if you don't understand them completely, then how are you supposed to explain them? Yeah, that's kind of my point. I hope you're praying for me. And, and I, hope, I hope you're praying for yourself, number one, that you'll stay awake, all right? Number two, that you'll, you'll be locked in, to, not necessarily to me, to, to what the Holy Spirit is saying. Because what we're going to talk about today is heavy stuff, it's important stuff, and it goes to the root of what it means that Christ has saved us. And there's nothing more important than that. In fact, I would start off by saying, what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. More important than your skill set, more important than your appearance, your wealth, your family connections, more important than your plans for the future. Nothing matters more than what you believe about God because you were created for a relationship with Him. I know we're all different. And all of us were created for a specific purpose, and maybe God's plan for you is to be a welder or an engineer or an attorney or a teacher or any number of things. And we all have a different purpose in the world, but deep down inside, all of us have the same purpose ultimately, and that is to know our Creator and to love Him and be loved by Him. And so what you believe about God matters more than anything else about you. Not long ago, I had a conversation with a guy I, I, I know a little bit. We had met uh, through our shared interest in the same athletic team. Uh, you probably know what team that is. But, uh, and, and so we were having a conversation online. And we were talking about his faith. He was raised in church. Um, like a lot of people his age, he's, he's walked away from that. And I was asking him, what, what was it that led you to walk away from your faith? What, what changed your mind? And he, of course, like a lot of, a lot of people his age who've walked away from the church, they've encountered Christians who weren't very nice, Christians who were mean, Christians who said one thing and did another. And that's not surprising because every church I've ever been a part of has been full of sinners. I haven't found the church yet that's full of perfect people. And so we are, going to, we are all going to disgrace Christ at times. And that does hurt our witness. But he also said something that I thought was noteworthy. I'd never heard anybody put it this way. He said, you know, the idea that God would shut people out of heaven just because they chose the wrong religion seems like a really poor metric to decide people's eternal fate. And it was one of those moments where I was glad we weren't face-to-face -face because in a, in a moment like that, I wouldn't have known what to say, but I had time to think because we were communicating online. And, I, and so I said, you know what? I agree with you. You know, like Tim Keller says, tell me about this God you don't believe in because I'm pretty sure I don't believe in him either. Um, I said, I think you're right. I said, I don't think that's actually how it works. I think the message of the Bible is more like this. Our world is broken and dying, and God has made a way against all the odds, against all logic. God has made a way to rescue us, and now he's trying to get as many of us as possible through that door. And that's the story of the world, and that's the story of the gospel. And I said that, and I waited, and I waited, and I kept refreshing, refreshing, and finally he came back and he said, well, that's a whole lot different than the way it was presented to me when I was growing up. And that's the thing, isn't it? It really matters 
how God is presented to someone. And I wonder how many of your friends, how many of your neighbors, how many of you were presented with an image, a picture of God that was enough like the God of the Bible that you didn't think anything of it, but enough different that it turned you off, that it drove you away, that it hurt you in your quest to know what's really true about life. People, we're, we're talking about this series, we're, we're in this series about the cross and what actually happened on Good Friday and what Jesus actually accomplished for us. And even in this idea of the cross and the songs we sang this morning, so, so rich, the words there. I hope you paid attention. And yet there are people, maybe even some of you, who look at this event of the cross completely different than someone like me. And I hear questions like this. I hear people say, I'm expected to forgive people no matter what they do to me. So... Why does God require a blood sacrifice in order to forgive our sins? Why is God so different? Why can't he just forgive us? Or others will say, you know, if I punished my child for somebody else's wrongdoing, then I'd be considered abusive. The the authorities would come take my kid away. But God kills his son who has done nothing wrong, and we're supposed to think he's good. How does that make sense? And those are difficult questions, but there are answers to those questions. And those answers are found in God's Word. And in large part, those answers are found in a word that's used in the Bible only a couple of times. We're going to look at one of them today. A word that I bet none of you has used all day today, and that's the word propitiation. Anybody here use that this morning? Okay. I I didn't think so. So propitiation is is a difficult word. It's a controversial word, as we're going to talk about. And I want to talk about that this morning and then get back to those questions we started with. All right? So... Propitiation. Let's look at chapter 3, verse 23 of the book of Romans. Romans 3, 23, you'll probably recognize this verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, there's that word, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that word propitiation. So what does it mean? Interestingly, it means satisfaction of a debt. So if I owe you money, and I pay you the money I owe, then that is our propitiation. That money that I paid has satisfied the debt. I no longer owe you anything. You no longer have that against me. So Jesus is our propitiation with the Father, which makes God sound like a loan shark, but it gets worse because the word is actually a religious word. It's not an economic word. Propitiation is not something you can pay with money. It's something you can pay with blood. And that makes God sound entirely different, doesn't it? So what does that mean? There's a, there's a song that came out in 2001, written by Keith and Kristen Getty, called In Christ Alone. Many of you know it. Um, back in 2001, I'll just have to confess to you, 2001, a lot of modern worship songs were a little bit shallow, a little bit, you know, Jesus is my boyfriend. But this was a song which, unusually for its time, was very, very theologically rich, way more rich than a lot of our classic hymns, in fact. And so it, it became very popular in churches, even churches that weren't all that contemporary started singing it. But there's a line in that song, and it goes like this. It says, And on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. And I noticed a few years ago 
that people weren't singing it that way. They were either skipping that verse entirely or they were singing it this way. They would say, and on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And that sounds a lot happier, doesn't it? And and I also did some research and I found out Keith and Kristen Getty that uh, they were not happy about this. They were saying, hey, that's not the way we wrote the song. If you're not going to write, if you're not going to sing the song the way we wrote it, don't sing it at all. Of course, they're Irish, so it sounded really happy when they said it, but still, they were really unhappy about this. But why did people refuse to sing The Wrath of God Was Satisfied? I maintain that this whole thing comes down to we don't understand three important things. Number one, the nature of sin, the nature of wrath, and the nature of God. So let's talk about those three things, and then we'll come back to our original question. The nature of sin goes to that question, why can't God just forgive me? Why does God need a sacrifice? People who ask that, and when we ask that, there are certain things we don't understand about the nature of sin. There's three things I want to talk about here. Number one, sin is not just a mistake we make, a bad deed we do. It is actually a rupture in a relationship. When I sin, it's not as though I've just made a mistake and I can walk away. I have hurt someone. I have wounded someone. There needs to be some satisfaction. The second thing is, whenever someone sins, someone always has to pay. If I sin against you, there is a cost that needs to be paid. Let me give you an example. If I borrow your car and I drive like a moron and I wrap it around a a tree, then you have a choice. You can say, all right, I need the money. I mean, I've taken this in. I've had it appraised. Here's how much you owe me for the repairs on the car. You may even take me to court to get that money. That's one option. Or you can say, Jeff, I understand. We all go a little crazy sometimes. I forgive you. But in that case, you have to pay. You pay the damages on the car. Or you pay to buy a new car. Or if you don't have the money to pay for it, you pay by having no car. So, That's one example. Let me give you a less economic example. Let's say you and I get into an argument, and I hurt you in some way, either physically or emotionally, and you have a choice. Again, you can attack me in return. You can hurt me back, or you can choose to forgive. But in that case, you pay the price. You pay by not getting the satisfaction that someone gets when they get revenge. You pay by looking weak in the eyes of others. You pay in the sense that you have that emotional cost If someone has hurt you and there's been no justice, so somewhere, somebody always has to pay when a sin is committed. Now, here's the third thing. Every sin is ultimately a sin against God. Every sin we commit, no matter who we sin against, and even those sins that we consider victimless crimes, every sin is ultimately a sin against God. And you may say, well, why would that be true? Well, let me ask you this. If you have a son or a daughter and you find out that son or daughter is getting bullied at school, how does that make you feel? Do you say, ah, big deal, that that happens to everybody? Or do you get angry? I think you get angry. If, If someone says something cruel and unthinking about one of your parents, do you feel hurt? Do you feel upset with that person? Absolutely. If If someone you love very much harms themselves in some way, do you hurt for them? Do you grieve for them? Yes. Why? Nothing bad has happened to you. It's because something bad has happened to someone you love, and that matters. And here's the thing. Every human being who has ever lived or will ever live is known and loved by God in a way that we can't comprehend. In fact, I'll go further. 
God loves every person who has ever lived more than any of us has ever loved anybody. So the sin that we do to someone else is a sin against that person, but it's also a sin against their father, and he feels it even more than they do. And I'll go even further than that. Even when we commit a sin and we say, well, I'm not hurting anybody. I'm just thinking dirty thoughts, or I'm just, I'm just planning hatred in my heart, but I'm not actually going to do anything. I'm just, I'm just greedy, but I'm not actually going to steal anything. Even those sins are sins against God because God created a perfect world And our sins are adding to the moral pollution of his universe. Our sins, every single one of them, are drawing our world just one step further away from the God that created it. So that's the nature of sin. And that's why verse 25 is so significant when it says, in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. What it's saying is that God, for centuries and centuries, was watching us sin, was watching us just basically throw darts at him and shoot guns at him and and attack him, and he was taking it over and over again. He was just refusing to pour out judgment on us. He was saving it up. Nobody had paid yet. He was going to make someone pay someday. That's the nature of sin. Secondly, the nature of wrath. So I'm going to say something you'll be surprised to hear. I think wrath, the wrath of God, is something we should praise Him for. I think the wrath of God is something we should celebrate. You don't want a God who has no wrath. And you might be thinking, well, dang, Jeff, I didn't know you were all hellfire and brimstone. But I know, I know, appearances can be deceptive. The truth is God's wrath is a wonderful thing, and I'll tell you why. Number one, because God's wrath is nothing like human anger. God's wrath is nothing like my anger. I can just, let me just give you a testimony. I've been angry many times in my life. I've never once been proud of anything I did or said when I was angry. I I could probably find one or two times in my life when I was angry for a legitimate reason. Even those times I was so out of control emotionally, I would have done better to have withheld my temper and just said the right thing. And I think if you're honest, you would say the same thing. When we get angry, we become different people. We just lose control. We do and say things we're later ashamed of. Our, par- our parents, our-, our spouse, our kids, people just don't want to be around us. But God is not like that because God's wrath is not an emotion. God doesn't blow his stack. He doesn't lose his temper. He remains the same. God's wrath is simply his settled opposition to evil. In other words, God's wrath means I'm not going to let you get away with this. Bad deeds deserve punishment. Bad deeds have consequences, and no one ultimately ever really gets away with it. That's God's wrath. It's not like human anger. It is not an emotion. It is a settled opposition to evil. Secondly, about God's wrath, God's wrath is actually a result of His love, not pride or selfishness. Because here, again, my testimony, why do I get angry? I get angry because somebody cuts me off in traffic because people in Houston drive like they're insane, right? I, I get angry because my wife says something that I just take offense to for whatever reason. I get angry because there's a guy down on the court or on the field who makes a call against my team because he's evil and he doesn't want us to win. And that just drives me nuts, right? It's all about me. All of my anger is about me, but God's anger is about love. His anger is about others. His anger is about the woundedness it inflicts, uh, that our, our sin inflicts on other people. That is, and I'll give you proof. Think of the time when Jesus was angry. What do you think of when you think of Jesus' anger? You think of that moment a few days before the cross 
when he goes into the temple of God and he throws everybody out. Remember that story? Turning over tables. Here's Jesus. Here's this gentle man. And suddenly he's in a room, a, a, a part of the temple bigger than our whole church campus. And he has cleared that whole place out. I mean, the, the divine wrath inside of him has manifested as human anger. And a place that was jammed with people and animals is suddenly, it's just Jesus standing there with a whip in his hand and a bunch of overturned tables. Why? Because that section of the temple that Jesus cleared out was called the court of the Gentiles. That was the only area in the temple complex that people like you and me who aren't Jewish could actually go into. That was, if you wanted to come to know the God of Israel, you had to go there. And yet it was so crammed with commerce, no one could get in. And Jesus, as he said, hey, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. You've made it into a den of robbers. That made Jesus angry. But look through his life at all the times he was insulted, all the times he was falsely accused, all the times he was physically assaulted, and he never once struck back. He never once even betrayed anger because it wasn't about him. That is our God. And then third, God's wrath is a result of his love, but it's also a result of his justice. It displays not just his love for us, but his justice, his hatred of evil. And and, and we want that. Here's why I say we praise God for his wrath, because what would you say if you heard a story about a judge who acquitted a child molester, who was guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt, simply because The judge and the accused were of the same race and the victims were of a different race. You would be furious. No matter what race you are, you would say, that guy needs to be disbarred. He needs to go to jail. What would you say if you had a child or a grandchild who was in elementary school and her teacher let a bully run rampant over the classroom, just walking around, punching kids in the head and calling them names, making them cry, stealing their lunch money, making life miserable. And anytime you confronted the teacher, she'd say, yeah, but he's just misunderstood. He just needs some patience. He just needs someone to believe in him. You would pull your child out of that class because you want a teacher who has control of her classroom, who will stand up to evil. What would you think if you were watching the news and you found out that this infamous dictator who had committed genocide against his own people and had started needless wars that killed tens of thousands of people, what if you heard that he had been deposed, but he found a cushy little landing spot somewhere else and was living in exile in another country in a nice cushy manner uh, with every, all of his needs met? Would you say, well, you know, everybody deserves a second chance? No, you wouldn't say that. You would want SEAL Team 6 to show up on his front door and drag him out of his comfy lair and make him face real justice, wouldn't you? And you know what? I've, I've known a lot of people in my life of all different stripes, and what I just said is true, whether you are a, a law and order conservative or a bleeding heart liberal, whether you are white or black or brown or yellow or red, whether you are rich or poor, well-educated or illiterate, no matter who you are, you know because you were made in the image of God, a God of justice, you know that evil has to be punished. You know that bad deeds have consequences and your heart hurts when those consequences aren't meted out. So you want a God of wrath. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that's why this verse is so significant, a verse almost as hard to wrap your mind around as the one we were reading earlier. It says, for our sake, he made him, that is Jesus, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So on the cross, as Paul is saying, on the cross, 
Jesus didn't just take responsibility for our sin. He became our sin. So here's all the world's evil, all the bad stuff you and I had done, and God concentrated it in one point and said, there it is, there's the evil, and he poured out his wrath on that one individual. And that leads us to that third question, the nature of God. So why, why would God pour out his, his, his wrath on his innocent son? How is that right? How is that just? Well, people who say that, people who say, well, God is like a divine child abuser, they misunderstand the nature of God. And if you think this, to the sermon this far has been hard to understand, we're just getting started. This is the really hard to understand part. So wake up, wake up your neighbor. You ready? So the nature of God is that God is one God in three persons, one God in three persons. The Bible's very clear on this. We see this several times in the life of Jesus. Jesus is baptized, for instance, in the River Jordan. And God, the Father, speaks from heaven. So you've got Father, Son, and here comes the Holy Spirit, lands on Jesus' shoulder in the form of a dove. You see Father, Son, Holy Spirit in one place, three distinct persons. And yet the Bible is absolutely clear that they are one God. See, this is something that, that I didn't understand until I was a, an adult, that God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, that, that God is not the Father and Jesus the Son in a human sense. Those are just metaphorical terms. That's just the Bible using human language so we understand there's a relationship there. But it's not like God is an old man and Jesus is a kid. It's not like God has a wife and Mr. and Mrs. God had a bouncing baby boy and named him Jesus, okay? Are you with me? God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They are one. Let me show you in the Scriptures where I get this from. John 14, 9. Context here is Philip, one of the 12, comes to Jesus and says, just show us the Father and that will be good enough for us. And Jesus, the Bible doesn't say this, but I'm convinced he whacked himself in the forehead before he said these words. He said, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I am him. John chapter 1. John 1 is all about this character that John calls the Word, capital W. We know it's Jesus because he says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So this is Jesus, the Word. Here's what it says about him. This is the first words of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And I remember when I was a teenager or a young adult, and I realized, oh, because I always thought that God the Father made everything, and Jesus was just sort of watching, you know, like in his jungle gym and saying, you go, Dad. But no, whatever God the Father does, the Son is doing. Whatever the Son is experiencing, the Spirit is doing. Whatever the Spirit does, the Father is doing. They are one. And so, finally, Colossians 1, just in case you think it's just John who has this high Christology, Colossians 1, 17, part of this great Christological hymn, says of Jesus, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Without Jesus, the whole universe would fly apart. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So, when Jesus died, it wasn't God pouring his wrath out on someone else. It was God pouring his wrath out upon himself. Now, I know, I know you're saying to me, yeah, but Jeff, Jesus prayed to God. How is, how is Jesus praying? Is he praying to himself? What? I don't know how that works. 
I'll just admit to you. You know what else? I don't know how an airplane takes off and lands, and yet I'll get on a plane and fly somewhere if you give me the tickets. I don't have to know how it works to believe it. God's Word tells me that God is one. God's Word tells me that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. And so I know that when Jesus died on the cross, that was God dying for my sins. That when the wrath of God was poured out on that innocent man, that was Almighty God pouring out His own wrath upon Himself. The wrath of God fired the bullet. The love of God caught it in His heart. God died for me at the cross. So that, that leads us to look at this Scripture a whole different way. So look back again at Romans 3, 23 through 26. It says, we've got a problem. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. The glory of God meaning we cannot approach Him. We are cut off from Him. That's a problem since our destiny, our purpose is to know Him for all eternity. We're going to miss it. And God wants to justify us. The term justify means to make us clean so that, so that we're pure, so that we're holy, so that we have access to Him once again. But God has a problem. He's got a dilemma. The dilemma is this. If He says, hey, don't worry about those sins, just come on in, then He's no longer a God of justice. Then He's no longer a God who is just, and He's no longer worthy of praise. He's the judge acquitting the child molester. He's the teacher allowing the bully to run rampant. He's the dictator. He, he's, the, he's, the, he's the people who allow the dictator to go safely into hiding. And that's not our God. Evil has to be punished. But on the other hand, if He gives us what we deserve, then He's not a God of love anymore. And worse, from His perspective, He loses what's most important to Him, and that's us. So that's God's dilemma. Actually, it wasn't a dilemma to God. He knew this was going to happen before He ever created the world. He knew the problem, and He knew the solution. But for us, it looks like an impossible dilemma. How does God solve this problem? By becoming a propitiation for our sake in the form of a man named Jesus so that He can be both just and that evil is absolutely condemned and destroyed forever. In that when Jesus died on that cross, as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was echoing the thoughts, not just of Psalm 22. He was telling what was going on in his heart because he was experiencing God forsakenness. God was experiencing God forsakenness. He was, he was experiencing the hell all of us deserve in six hours. Compressed into six hours. And so God is just. But he's also the justifier. Because he didn't just punish evil, he made us clean. He justified us. He is the just, he is just and the justifier of all who are in Christ Jesus. Back in 2001, uh, same year that In Christ Alone was written by the Gettys, a British author named Ian McEwen wrote a book. And in this book, it's, it's a tragic story set in the 1940s of a young girl who just thoughtlessly tells a lie that ends up destroying the lives of two people who were very close to her. And in the story, which I'm skipping over vast amounts of, of course, in the story, there's a moment later on when the girl is a grown woman, and she happens to meet these two people whose lives she destroyed with her dishonesty, and they accuse her, and they lash out at her, and she takes it, and she asks their forgiveness, and she says, listen, I, I'm totally responsible for what has happened to you, and I will do everything I can to make things right. And that's just this climactic point in the story, and then the story changes, and all of a sudden we jump way ahead in time and we see this elderly woman who says that she is the narrator of the story and the little girl in the story is her. 
And she says, all of this is true. All of this actually happened except that last part. I made up that last part. Because the truth is, I never got to see those two people again. They died during the war, and I never got to, I never got to make things up to them. I never got to say I was sorry. She said, I wrote it this way because I want you as the reader to have some closure. I want you as the reader to have to be left with some sense of hope, some sense of redemption, because that's something I can never have. And the name of the book is a very deep theological word. It's the word atonement. That word atonement actually means to make things right, to make something that's wrong into a right. In fact, in some English translations of Romans 3, it doesn't say propitiation. It says he is a sacrifice of atonement. So those are related words. And the reason I told you that story is that deep down inside, all of us, every single one of us, is like that little girl, is like that young woman, because we've all done things we're deeply ashamed of. My goodness, If all of us were forced to share our most shameful sins right now, none of us would be able to stand. And that includes me too. And we've done things that we're deeply ashamed of, things that we wish we could go back and change, but we can't. It's impossible. And we can't make up for it. We can't change the past. The toothpaste is out of the tube. We can't do something so good it's going to outweigh the bad. It's impossible. And some of us may not even be willing to admit that, but we'd have to admit if we were honest. You know, I I just don't understand, but no matter what I do, it's not enough. I I pursue relationships with a person who seems right for me, but they don't satisfy me. I I chase after success, and even if I gain it, I'm not happy. I, I, I reach out for wealth, and the stuff I buy, it makes me happy for a while, but then that happiness goes away. What's wrong? Just like Augustine said so many years ago, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you, Jesus. There's something wrong. There's something deep down inside wrong at our core. And so we need atonement. We need propitiation. We need our Savior. And there are others in this room, and I I hope this is most of you, who would say, you know, that's not me. I've been redeemed. I was there once, but now I've been redeemed. I know I belong to Jesus. I know I'm forgiven. But here's the danger for us, for the people who are already redeemed and know it. We have a tendency to forget what it costs. We have a tendency to think, can I be honest? We have a tendency to say, you know, really, I got like almost there and Jesus gave me just a little bump over over the wall, right? He just gave me a little boost so I could get there. And that's not at all true. Because all of our righteous deeds and all of our religious actions didn't get us one inch closer. It was all Jesus. It was all His work for us on that cross where he traded places with us, where we became righteous and he became sin. It's all us. And and, and the reason that's important is because we have friends out there, just like my friend I talked about at the beginning, who've been presented an image of God that's enough wrong that it turns them away from salvation. And they run into us, and if what they see is arrogance and self-righteousness, and I'm better than you because I go to church and because I follow the rules and because I don't use these words and I don't go to these places, if that's what they get from us is a list of rules and regulations, that's just going to drive them even further away. They need the gospel because the gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news. Now let, me, let me just 
As I close, let me just share this with you. This, this is how good the news is. Even in the Old Testament, right now we're reading through the whole Bible and people are coming up to me and saying, Jeff, this Old Testament is really tough to read. And I say, yes, absolutely it is, but it's worth it. Stick with it. Because you find things like this. Isaiah 49, 16 says, Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. And the context there is the people of Israel, God's people, had been exiled. They'd been kicked out of their country. Their temple had been burned. The place where they met with God was gone forever. They were living in a foreign land where they worshiped foreign gods. And they started to say, well, I guess God's done with us. We've been rejected. And God says, I haven't forgotten about you. That's the message of Isaiah 49. He says, how could I forget about you, I have your name carved into the palm of my hand. That's a really graphic image, isn't it? Have you ever cut your finger or your thumb or your hand, and then for the rest of the week, you're like thinking about it every time you touch something? Imagine, imagine if someone's name was carved into your palm, tattooed right there. You'd never forget that person, right? And that's what God is saying to his people. And you might say, okay, but that's all, that's just sentimental. That's just symbolic because God is spirit. He doesn't have an actual hand. Okay. But there came a day when God took on flesh, when God took on a human body with hands and feet and a head, and he held out those hands so that human beings, just like you and me, could put nails right through the heart of them, right where those names were written, your name and mine. Nails that attached him to a cross where he hung, where he paid the price and died. How could he forget us? The Bible says that after Jesus rose again, he still had those scars. You and I, when we rise again, we're going to have perfect bodies, but Jesus, his scars remained because he wants us to know. He wants us never to forget, this is how much I love you. This is what you mean to me. And if that's not good news to you, that's the best news of all. I don't know what else to say. My last question is, people who know you who don't know Christ, do they see that good news? Do they hear that good news in you?